Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Darkest Hour. I'm your host, Amanda Jane. When we lose someone, it can be comforting to believe that they are still around us, looking out for us. Sometimes we just like to know that someone is there, and sometimes we're lucky enough to receive that information. A hello from the other side. Maybe it doesn't happen for all of us, but some of us, sure. And it must feel great. Well, maybe. But how do we know it's our loved one? How can we be sure who we're hearing or seeing means us no harm? Will it be as obvious as we'd like it to be to tell the difference? Do we even have to worry about such things? Honestly, I don't know, and I guess it would be different for each individual, but I do know that tonight's stories sure made me think about it. So, let's get started, shall we? Kids say the darndest things, right? Kindergarten teacher here. Earlier this month, the parent of a student contacted me about a death in the family. Her mother, the student's grandmother, she'd been living with them until she passed. The family took a week off, and they just returned late last week. On Monday, the student comes into class, completely exhausted, I kept him inside for recess, and he slept the whole time in our little reading nook. Before the kids got back in, I woke him up and asked how his weekend was and why he's so tired. The little boy tells me his grandma is keeping him awake at night. I ask if he's been having sad dreams that have been waking him up. Experiencing a close loss is traumatic for a child, and originally, I assumed and expected him to be a bit off after he returned. But he says, it's not when he's dreaming. Before he's asleep, Grandma hides in his closet and calls out for him, calling his name and telling him to come play with her. He says it scares him, so he tries to stay as quiet as possible. I ask if it could be the sound of a TV in another room, or loud neighbors, and he says no. He knows it's her because when he doesn't reply, she sometimes will poke her head out and either keeps calling for him or starts meowing like an old cat. My next question is, has he told his mom about this? He said yes, but she doesn't believe that grandma's hiding in the closet. I asked, why doesn't he just go to mom's room when grandma scares him? He says the closet is right next to his bedroom door, and he's afraid that she'll jump out and grab him if he tries to run. All my years as an undergrad, still paying off college debt, and I'm already running into problems I wasn't taught how to handle. So, next recess, he and I visit our school's guidance counselor, She's amazing with children and a seasoned vet when it comes to tackling tough situations. 
but even she was at a loss for words when he finished his story. She asked him to draw a picture of what he sees. She and I shared the same uneasy expression when his drawing was complete. After school, I called his mom to converse about the day. Speaking with his mom, she's well aware of her son's fears. She also told me that she's been hearing noises too, but doesn't want to scare her son by confirming his fears are real. She said that her next plan was to get in contact with their church, to get someone over there to bless the house. Until then, she's going to let him sleep in the living room this week. Guess I'll have to wait until tomorrow to see if Grandma pays another visit. Childcare workers, what's the darndest thing kids have ever told you? How would you handle this situation? My hometown is prime paranormal investigator real estate. It's literally the only good thing about it. We have haunted ghost tours, and we make a big deal out of anything that brings in more tourist money. Haunted antebellum homes, restaurants, cemeteries. That's just a few of our attractions. Growing up there, it's hard not to take an interest in ghost stories at some point. One of my closer friends, let's call her Meg, lives in one of the haunted antebellum homes. She had several first-hand experiences, but I'm mostly going to focus on my own. The nursery. The nursery has a story unto itself. No one has used it since the family living there before the Civil War. The furniture is in exactly the same spot as the last day it was used. The father was an army major, but he retired after some Indians put an arrow in him. When he got home, he learned his son had died from scarlet fever, and it broke the man. He started spending all of his time at home and began farming. Eventually, they had a new baby. A nanny slept in the nursery because back then... They didn't have baby monitors, so there was still a second bed in Meg's room because the father also slept in the baby's room for the first month. He would have stayed longer, but it caused problems in his marriage. The servants started to gossip, and that's about as bad as it gets for a woman during that time. Ultimately, the husband conceded and moved back into the master suite. A few mornings later... The nanny burst into their room, frantic, screaming. The baby had passed in the night. The mother, still in shock, accused her of murder. And of course, the nanny denied the accusation, but it didn't matter. The father lost his grip on reality and beat the nanny to death. Her husband committed suicide that same night. Sometimes... Meg hears a baby crying at night. Every now and then, if the sounds last more than a couple minutes, footsteps will walk to the crib. Then, the crying stops, and the steps seem to begin pacing, like someone is picking up the baby and walking with it. Normally, 
The nursery doors stay closed, and no one goes inside. But I did sleep in there once. I didn't expect anything to actually happen, but it really freaked Meg out when I touched the crib. She thought I would piss off the spirits. I sat with my back against the wall and the bed, opened both of the doors wide and settled in for the night. I played on my phone for an hour or two without incident, but that's when the door on my right swung closed. It surprised me. They were heavy doors, and I yelped a little bit. I thought I would hear Meg if she tried to sneak up on me. You honestly can't take three steps in that house without floors creaking. Still, I didn't hesitate. I ran down the hall hoping to catch her, but there were no retreating footsteps. No, nothing. The hallway on that side extended both ways. I ran the shortest path to Meg's room, sure that I would run into her any moment, but I made it to her open door without trouble. When I looked in, Meg was sound asleep. Well, I wasn't sure she was asleep, but she looked damn convincing. I was sure she would deny it if I played the game of waking her up, so I retreated. I sat in my original position and replayed the events, assuming she did sneak into the doorway, reaching her arm inside and pulled the door closed straight in front of me with the lights on, making no sound. Then, how did she get back to her room? What else could make the door close? AC kicking on? No, it stayed off in that part of the house. Likewise, no open windows or anything else to contribute to an air draft. It had sat perfectly still up until the point of it closing. I tried to recreate the event, but I couldn't make the door shut at all, not to latch. Finally, I accepted defeat and went to bed, too tired to care anymore. I was deep in a dream. I really didn't want it to end, when the sound of a crying baby leaked in. Have you ever had the sound of something in the real world seep into your dream? Creates a confusing moment of both coexisting before you realize, oh... This is a dream, but that noise isn't. That's what happened to me. It took longer than usual to understand because there's no baby in my life, nor Meg's. There's no reason for me to immediately think it was part of real life. But then I heard soft footsteps right next to me and a light whisper of, And that's when I remembered where I was sleeping. My eyes shot open, and for one instant, I saw a dark figure standing over me. But as my vision focused, there was nothing there. Everything was silent for a fraction of a second, and my heart was just beginning to slow when both of the doors suddenly slammed shut simultaneously. I didn't wait to see what else would happen. I grabbed my pillow, ran to a different guest room, and though I never quite fell asleep, I didn't experience anything else either.
mother told me a true story of when she was younger. She was about 15 or 16. She had a cousin who was beautiful, fair-skinned, light eyes, auburn hair, sweet and kind. One night, she was coming home late from a friend's house when it started to rain heavily. She was still a few blocks from home, so she took shelter underneath a giant tree. In Islam, they say that you should not be out after sunset, and especially never be out around trees, as that's where spirits roost. When my mother's cousin arrived home that night, she was shivering, wet, and extremely tired. She went to sleep right away, and the cousin my mother once knew was gone. She woke up a different person, thing. There was no hiding behind her cousin's identity. This thing claimed he was a male jinn, and he found her to be very beautiful. He wanted to marry her, and he wouldn't be taking no for an answer. The cousin's parents called several imams. Each one tried prayers and to coax the jinn out to leave this body, release her. Let her go free. The jinn refused. My mother said it was so odd seeing her cousin. It was her cousin's body and face, but when she spoke, a deep male's voice came out. It would talk about places and faraway lands it had visited. My mother's cousin had never left the small town or village. She or it would produce fruits and vegetables that were out of season and not grown in that region. My mother said that once her aunt and uncle were having trouble with their stone oven. In Pakistan, these stone ovens weighed a lot, and they took four strong men to lift and move. The cousin saw the parents struggling and moved the oven by herself or itself. That was not their daughter. The strength and the power that it displayed was might as well have been magical. Things that it did, such as producing the fruits and vegetables without leaving the house, it's unexplainable, but at the time, they knew this wasn't their daughter trying to be someone else. This was someone else. My mother said the gin stayed in her cousin's body for almost a year until her aunt and uncle's story reached a very poised and renowned imam. He traveled to the home and read Quran. They had prayer, had the cousin drink Zamzam water, didn't leave her side until the jinn finally left from the torture. My mother said her cousin didn't remember anything. It was as if her life started again from the night she originally came home from standing underneath the tree. My aunt and uncle didn't tell her and had everybody else promise to never tell her anything about the possession. My mother said her cousin was back, the same happy, sweet, and kind girl that she used to be. She went on to get married to a nice man from her college, and they had four cute children. She's in her 60s now, and she doesn't know what happened to her all of those years ago. My grandmother hesitantly confirmed the story, providing more details only after promising I would never speak of it to anyone in Pakistan when I go to visit relatives. My uncles, they've also confirmed the story, witnessing for themselves what occurred. 
possession apparently runs on both sides of my family, mother and father. On my father's side, it hits closer to home. I'll post that soon. I've always been a big believer in the paranormal. I lost my dad in 2016, and I've heard him talk to me. I've seen things, felt things, all just unexplainable. I'll start with some background. So me and my friend, we'll call her Aubrey, met September 2017, ten days after her daughter was born. She didn't like me at first, but... Before I knew it, she adopted me like her own. We were attached to the hip, inseparable. I actually ended up living with her on and off for about a year or two, and I helped her raise her daughter when me and my grandpa weren't on great terms. I call her mom, she calls me daughter, and her daughter calls me sissy. We're family, blood or not. So you can take a guess how often I was at her house. Her grandma wasn't home for months at a time, so we were the safe house, the party house, the chain smoke cigarettes on the back porch when you're going through a breakup house. We had friends over all the time. We were all super close, and that house was like a breeding ground for paranormal activity. Knocking on walls, footsteps down the hallway, things moving around, voices, the feeling of being watched... The random cold chills, even the piano playing by itself. Me and Aubrey's at the time boyfriend heard it from two separate rooms one night. It was only us three in the house. I could tell you guys a hundred stories of things that happened in that house. Not just to me, but to all of our friends. My fiancé was waiting by himself for me and Aubrey to get home. And he heard voices like a conversation in the hallway. Grabbed a bat to start swinging, but no one was there. Anyway, this particular story happened in 2018. I had just recently graduated high school, so I was always at her house. We enjoyed a nice smoke session on her back porch every once in a while, but she still had to mom, and I still had to sister, so we never got blasted out of our minds. Just a few hits and smoke some cigarettes, go to bed for the night, when it was just us. Sometimes we'd stay up later, just talking and laughing, but at the time, her daughter wasn't sleeping well, so we were usually exhausted and just wanted to sleep. This night, we had a friend of ours, we'll call him James, we had him come over to hang out for a bit. We all smoked a little bit, talked, laughed, and then James left, and we decided to call it a night. Aubrey was exhausted, and I didn't really want to be out there alone, so I came inside too. So Aubrey goes back to bed, and she always turned her phone on Do Not Disturb because she didn't want to wake her daughter. It was always a fight to get her to go to sleep. We did everything we could to not wake her up again. Brief layout. You walk into the front sitting room from the front door, and there's the hallway to the left that leads to the bedrooms and the bathroom. And to the right, there's the doorway to the kitchen. All the way to the right, the north wall. And the doorway to the living room, right next to it, on the east wall. 
There's a pull-out couch in the sitting room that you can see into the kitchen from, so I have a clear look to the porch as well as the TV from where I'm sitting. I've been inside for probably about an hour or two. I'm not super tired this night, so I'm facing away from the doorways, scrolling through Instagram when suddenly I hear a high-pitched frequency sound. So I sit up on the pullout, trying to see which direction it's coming from. When I realize the TV got left on, but it's just a black screen. Like if your gaming console goes into rest mode or your cable box turns off. Still on, but nothing on the screen. So I shrugged it off, just the TV. And as I'm going to roll over and lay back down, I see someone sitting in Aubrey's chair on the back porch, smoking a cigarette. We all had our own assigned chairs outside. So when you first walked out the sliding door, mine was on the left and hers was on the right. Just your typical swivel patio chairs, with the other chairs just around, making a circle around the little table out back. There's an ashtray, and it's where we would set our drinks. The back porch light is on, so I can clearly see someone there. But when the kitchen light is on too, it created a glare on the glass door of anything that was sitting on the kitchen table. At first, I'm kind of moving my head around to get different views from where I'm sitting. Maybe somehow the glare is making it look like someone is sitting there and my eyes are just playing tricks on me. But no, it's a person. So then I start to think... Maybe James forgot his cigarettes or something. But he would have called or text to let me know he was coming back to grab them. And especially would have said something if he was going to hang around to smoke a cigarette, alone or otherwise. So I'm looking, trying to figure out who the hell is smoking a cigarette on our porch when we're not out there with them, without even telling us they'd be there. And then it looks at me. It looks at me, dead in the eyes. I froze. I felt like I couldn't move, couldn't breathe, and my body was covered in chills. It starts to stand up, but I don't stick around long enough to find out whether it's going to walk right through the door like Casper the Friendly Ghost or knock on the door like a person. I grab my phone and I run to the bathroom. I'm texting Aubrey over and over, telling her someone is outside, and I don't know who it is. But of course, she's not answering, because her phone is on Do Not Disturb. And everyone knows, once Aubrey is in her room for the night, don't open that door. For fear of waking the little crotch demon that Aubrey had to have cut out of her. So, when I open the door, she's giving me a look like, What the hell do you want? And I'm trying to stay as quiet as possible while I'm panicking, trying to tell her someone is outside. She tells me to stay with her daughter while she grabs some type of weapon. I can't remember what, but she goes back to look. She comes back and tells me she didn't see anything. No sign of anyone. Nothing. She grabs the baby monitor and comes out to the living room with me for a while. I tell her what just happened, 
and she offered to let me sleep in her room that night. I did. We never knew whether it was a human or something else. Needless to say, we went out and bought baseball bats, machetes, and large hunting knives to leave in different parts of the house in case anyone ever tried to break in. Me and Aubrey are both 5'3", 100 pounds soaking wet, with a tiny human to defend. The fuck are we gonna do, you know? Human or not, it was enough to make us come up with a plan if anything like that did ever happen again. No one ever said that they came over that night and just forgot to call. No one ever said, oh hey, that may have been me, when I told everyone the story. Me and Aubrey never found out who or what it was. Human, stranger, friend, apparition, paranormal, who knows. I'll never forget it, though. My career in journalism was short-lived. The drive it took to uncover a hard-hitting truth wasn't really my thing. I wrote for my town's weekly newspaper. We covered all the local happenings going on in our small community. From church bake sales to school fundraisers, we'd also be at the high school home games for whichever sports season. So, short-lived career, but... One exciting story. After a year of working these lackluster gigs, I was not only bored but uninspired. My journalistic integrity was being traded each time I collected a paycheck for articles I cared nothing about. Word salads to entertain our dwindling readers before something shiny could steal their attention. The purpose for why I entered the field had been forgotten. Drown, rather, submerged by the grip of accumulating bills and a slight coke addiction during this time in my life. Although it has nothing to do with my story, it did consume a lot of my income and was a big contributing factor as to why I continued working for a newspaper I hated. And because I mentioned it, I feel like I also need to state that I never became a cokehead. I was a functioning addict, if you could be that... First time my dad found out was when I called him from rehab. My first son was on the way, and I wanted to kick every habit. Almost 23 years later, we're still good. So, let's get back to the story. So I'm assigned a story on an upcoming police or people week. That week, I'm supposed to ride around with a few police officers and interview them. This week was set up as an attempt by our mayor to grow trust and humanization of our cops with the community. Monday and Tuesday, the officers I meet, although nice, live just as miserable lives as me. Nothing extravagant. My biggest challenge was embellishing the notes I took to fill a whole column with such content as lived in Montana and played basketball in college. Each sentence, dimming the fading light of hope I had for writing an article that someone would actually read. Not just fillers for blank space. Thursday evening, my pleas for excitement were granted. 
the officer I'm interviewing that night is named Mr. Dell. He was a rookie cop who'd just graduated from the academy. His bubbly personality was a stark contrast from his fellow officers. The glaze of hopelessness wasn't draped over his eyes when he introduced himself. Officer Jake Dell. He was 22 years old, served in the military, and a fun fact about him was that he was left-handed. As the interview took place, we rode around in his police car, and I had the chance to see him do some real police work. Officer Dell was cool. His tall stature demanded respect, but his soft-spoken voice felt like a soothing parent as I watched him talk to some really drunk people outside of a bar. We'd even given one of them a ride home after we were done there. Later that night, in the early a.m., we received a noise disturbance complaint in a small neighborhood on the south side of town. We follow the coordinates to an address located at the end of a long cul-de-sac. Our vehicle pulls in without lights or sirens and parks in front of the house. It's a vacant home with a for sale sign in the front yard. Officer Dell double checks that we're in the right place and dispatch confirms. So he tells me to stay in the car while he checks it out. When he opened his car door, the neighborhood was quiet. He walks to the other side of the car and into the front yard with his flashlight on. He writes the real estate agent's information on a small notepad and takes his flashlight and starts pointing it in each of the windows. I'm following the circle of the light from window to window. We both see something big covering most of the window frame. Suddenly, it shoots straight down, out of view. Officer Dell looks at me, then looks back at the house. He taps his radio for dispatch, but the line is silent. He clicks a couple more times, but can't produce a beep. Officer Dell turns around and hops back into the car and tries to use the radio, but it's still quiet. We drive around the block again until we find reception to call it in. We have no success, so we pull back in in front of the house. Sitting next to me, Officer Dell asks if I saw it too, in the window. I did. He gets back out and reminds me not to leave the car before he closes the door and once again approaches the house. His flashlight scanning each of the windows as he walks towards the front door. He knocks a couple of times before trying the handle. The door's unlocked. Officer Dell retrieves his gun and slowly steps into the dark house. Through the front windows, I can see his brief flashes from his flashlight as he makes his way from room to room in the house. When he returns to the car, he's sitting there with a puzzled stare. He says upstairs there were hundreds of dead crows in each room. The whole house smelled like complete death, but he didn't find any squatters or anything. No windows were broken and from his quick inspection. No signs of forced entry or damage anywhere else in the house. That's well and good, but how did all those birds get in there?
The floors upstairs were covered, as he said, in black feathers. We drive back to the station, and when Officer Dell is recounting his odd experience to the other officers in the room, they joke that it's really the realtor's problem. Under what I can only describe as frat-like pressure, Officer Dell called the number from his notes, leaving a message explaining the noise complaint and what he found. I have to believe that a bit of unprofessional laughter was caught on the answering machine as Officer Dell hung up because it was deafening at the precinct. After thanking Officer Dell for the interview and ride-along, I got in my car and left. But before I went home, I decided to go back to that address and check it out for myself before the realtor had time to clean it all up. Call it morbid curiosity. Call it a journalistic thirst for the unknown. Something pulled me back down that quiet neighborhood, returning to where I was just 30 minutes ago. But this time in a small convertible, and alone. I parked a little ways down the street, at a flashlight. It wasn't nearly as powerful as Officer Dell's, but it was enough to softly illuminate my near surroundings. The front door is still unlocked, and when I open it, the smell is immediately overwhelming. I retch, and I pull the neck of my shirt over my nose to breathe. I head toward the stairs, shining my light up the first couple of steps. There's already a couple of dead crow bodies lying at various levels, and I hear wings begin to aggressively flap my way. I duck, but when the sound passes, I can see none of the crows have moved, and they're still resting in place. Making my way to the top, I realize Officer Dell was not over-exaggerating when he said hundreds of crows. I felt myself moving forward, looking from room to room, wanting answers as to why all of these dead birds were here. When I get to the room we originally saw the figure in, the floor's not been spared of crow remains, but inside this room is a tall ladder leaned against the vaulted ceiling. It's near a piece of ceiling that's recently been partially filled in. A large hole still takes up a large patch of this fill work. I climb up the ladder and shine my light into the hole. There's a good three-foot gap between the room's ceiling and the roof's interior, leading outside. That layer is undamaged, but the gap between looked like a wooden slide into the abyss of black, probably leading into the walls. I wasn't brave enough to climb in there, nor do I think I could have climbed out. I envisioned myself being stuck in there, upside down like an unfortunate cave explorer. And so I began to climb back down. Then the whole room suddenly flashed white, and I lost my balance. I fell off the ladder. I hit the floor. It knocks the wind out of me. And I lay and I wheeze until I get enough oxygen to get to my feet and run back to my car. 
I stayed up until the morning trying to write a story about my time with Officer Dell. What ran in the paper was another cookie-cutter story about a rookie cop with big hopes for our community. I didn't have another opportunity to enter that house, and it sold a few months later. I'd be curious to know if Officer Dell remembers that night. Well, friends, it appears we've reached the end of tonight's episode, but don't miss a brand new one every Friday night. Don't forget to like this video, subscribe to The Darkest Hour if you haven't already, and tap the bell so you never miss a thing, like my other weekly uploads every Sunday and Wednesday. I want to thank those who shared their stories, and a big thanks to all of you for listening. Huge shout out to all of my patrons whom I appreciate so much. Monica L., Zoe Watt, Shelly B., Donald C., Rat Girl, Alicia S., Aaron G., Nikki H., Mr. Revenant, Naz K., and a warm welcome to the Darkest Hour's newest patron, Tracy S. If you want to support the Darkest Hour in other ways, consider joining my Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash thedarkesthour. You can keep up with me and all things Darkest Hour over on my Instagram, at thedarkesthourYT, and Twitter, at AmandaJaneTDH. Do you have stories like these? I'd love to share them. Send them to me, amandadarkesthour at gmail.com, or on the Darkest Hour subreddit. The Darkest Hour, YT. Stay spooky.